Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Yoga Living Project podcast. This episode we are posting a recent satsang where we did a uh, community Q&A at Cambio around asana. And some people thought maybe that we were going to be doing some like posture breakdown, but the conversation definitely took a turn towards more philosophical tendencies and yeah I mean even the word enlightenment got thrown around a little bit so there is some background noise to be uh, aware of at there's about five minutes if you just bear with it there um, it goes away and um, but it's still definitely listenable and you can always just skip past that part if that's too much for you as well just want to give you a heads up anyway thanks for listening and we'll check back next week with you to see what else we have in store enjoy so this was this is kind of like a socratic seminar today so um anybody can question anybody can answer and um yeah, I'll just, I'm just here to break up the fights. That's all I'm here to do. <laughs> shoulder stand shouldn't be done like that. Oh, you want to bet? Watch my shoulder stand. If there's ever a pose to get in a fight about, it might be shoulder stand or headstand. But uh, well, and hopefully we won't have that argument. I mean, I think like there was a time when I used to teach headstand a lot and as a teacher just kind of thinking it's like any other arm balance or you know upside down you know it's just like a hard it's an easier vo- version of like handstand was kind of my thinking and then of course you know um, yoga moves further and further into the western world of you know uh, physical therapists doing yoga and the biomechanics getting smarter and smarter around some of the asana and I think for a long time I got scared away from teaching headstand, and uh, and it's just been like dormant like that. Like I haven't taught a headstand for it's probably been like two years since I taught headstand, and I'm sure if anybody listens to this because this will be posted on the podcast, the Yoga Living Project podcast, uh, there's probably lots of people out there who are like, "Good, don't ever teach it again." <laughs> but I also got to say I love headstand. You know. I mean, does anybody else love headstand? It's a great pose. You like it? Yeah, it's very invigorating. I think it's rejuvenating. I like it better than handstand. Yeah. Um, I think it's more accessible. Um, you can start off slowly, and you, there's so many ways you can do it. You can cradle your head. You can have your hands on the other side. You can have your right. hands out. I mean, there's just—it's like vanilla ice cream. It's just simple, but then you can add on so much. It's fantastic. It's simple yet complex. It's, and That's you know what what's really that. nice is eating vanilla ice cream in headstand. <laughs> yeah. So good. Would you? Would the? How would the headache work? Would it go to your feet if you eat I have a too fast? I have a foot freeze. That's good. Well, yeah. I mean, right? Like Iyengar would teach it and. He would make his students, like beginner students, they would do it for like, you know, I mean, if you look at light on yoga, if you look at any of these traditional hatha yoga texts, it's like the the time frame for a headstand. It's not like, oh, just do it for three to five breaths. It's literally like 15, 30, 45 minutes, 60 minutes. If you do headstand for three hours, you will float off the face of the earth. 
<laughs> and reach enlightenment on a planet called Dartan. They've been reunited with your reptilian ancestors. No. Uh, so any any other thought? I don't know why. I just started on a headstand. I just figured let's just start on a headstand. So really, this, I'm starting with the question today. So I get to ask the first question. So um, have you have you taught it or do you teach it or? Rarely. Rarely teach it. I teach it when I'm one on one with people. One on one, yeah. Yeah. And I mainly work with old people these days, so I haven't been doing it at all. Like like nursing homes. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I, Very rare. Uh, what about you, Maria? No. I don't want to teach it. Well, it's an intimidating posture to teach, right? It's a what? It's intimidating. Yeah, it is. And it's like I need to wait till I'm like more confident and switching up the sequence before I like start Put the headstand in there. Because, like, right now I'm working on, like, changing the sequence. Yeah. So, like, once I get with that, I'm like, okay, maybe. You're just spreading your wings. Slowly, but surely. Yeah. But, yeah. I Not remember. I, you know, you always have those students. Because, I mean, I've ta I used to teach it all the time. And I remember the students who would, like, come up into it and just be like, you're just like, that's wrong. You know what I mean? Like you see it and you're all, you're killing yourself and I don't know what to do with the yoga teacher. Like, just grab their feet and lift them up. And just, like, shaking the change out of their pockets at that point. Anyway. And I guess you just hope that they are truthful and that they don't have any neck pain or upper back injuries. And, right, right. Well, and I will say that the caveat um, is that, you know, Iyengar, when he teaches it, like, he is such a master of alignment, that if you're really doing headstand right, you should feel very, very, very little pressure in the head at all. Um, but he never taught, like, the tripod headstand, as far as, I'm, as, far as I know. I may be wrong on that. Um, but, you know, I mean, this is the traditional yoga headstand. And if you really have... If you've got the head in the cradle, and you're, you know, you're long enough here, because sometimes anatomically too, because of the chromium process, the humerus can't actually reach high enough. And some people are like, you know, I'm ready for a headstand, and their forearms are down by the ears, you know, and it's like, you're going to be on your head. So if people can't do this, then anatomically, headstands, you can't actually prop it, perhaps. Be tricky, but again, only in a one-on-one -on -one setting. You wouldn't want to do that in a class. But if you can reach this far and you really strengthen the body and align it properly, the head should be bearing very little weight. So you're not going to be risking the cervical spine at all. Hello, sir. Hey, sorry to be so late to the satsang. That's okay. I'm okay. glad you're here. Me too. You know, we're just talking about headstands, but we're about done with it. Okay. <laughs> We're all going to try it now. No. The headstands I do are on the floor, pressing against the wall and adapting. Oh, that's good. Oh, yeah. So, what do you do? You lay on your back? Yes. And you put your head against the wall? Your hands. Hands against the wall. Right. Where's your head, though? On the mat. So, what do you mean? So, you're like this? Your hands go here? No, you're on your back. And like laying down, like if you were doing shavasana, but your hands are going to be this way, facing. Oh, okay. so you're pressing against the wall. Oh, handstand. Yeah, handstand. Oh, I'm saying headstand. Do you guys I've got do? Five on the wrong ear. 
You have it on the wrong ear. Those hearing aids in this one. Uh huh. And this one's deaf. Yeah. Well. Oh well. I'll just shout loud enough it bounces off the wall. <laughs> that sounds good. Okay. Uh, or I can scoot down. Do you, do you all have an adaptive version of headstand? Yeah. Do you have an adaptive version of headstand that you guys do? Not that I'm aware of. No. Okay. That's a good question for Jason or Morgan or somebody. Yeah. Okay, so we can always come back to headstand. This has been fascinating for me. But, <laughs> but I'm sure you have other questions, or maybe you don't. I don't know. If you don't have questions, we can. I'll keep talking. But is there anything burning in your heart about Asana? Like, what do you want to know, or what do you want to say about it? That's fine, too, if it's not a question. If it's just like a generalized statement. I just want to go. For some of those, those questions, because um, we were doing dolphin on the wall um, or trying to get into crow, I have a hard time trusting my arms to hold me up. I don't quite trust them yet. <laughs> like, I'm going to fall. So then I get scared and then I, and I don't want to do it. So that's, yeah. that's, that's where my challenge is with some of those where you're just relying you know, yeah, on, the strength. on the strength of yeah, yeah they're. Oh, pup. And it's. I guess it, part of it's just learning that one. Just in mm -hmm. general practice, you know, it's still. It's kind of still a journey. Yeah. Because you're trying to. When you're starting and you're trying to learn what, you, what your body will do, what you think your body will do. And, you know, right. So, you know, I always appreciate when you get those little adjustments that align it just a little bit more so you have that balance. You know, yeah. You're not. I think, yeah, it, well, Jeannie, I can say too, though, I've seen a lot of students who are, like, way stronger than me, and they are, not that I'm the strongest person in the world, but, like, people who are legitimately strong enough to handstands they should be able to pull off no problem, and they can't do it because they've got the mental block. Yeah. You know? Because just, like, orientating yourself in that inverse way is just like, it's just so like, nope, nope, not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, you hear inversion and you're like, oh, nope, I'm, I'm never, nope, 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 nope. Right? I think you have to be okay with, I mean, it's the mental block, to be okay with falling on your face. I mean, you don't want to hurt, hurt yourself, yeah. but, but I'm a nerd, I watch yoga videos all the time, and there's these people who do these beautiful inversions, and then occasionally they'll put a video up where they're falling on their face, and it makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> okay, so they don't get it right every time, and that's okay. It's part of the practice, it's part of the journey, and there's something to be learned from that, too. Yeah, like you said, it's getting past that mental block and allowing yourself to fall, because you're so used to not, you know, fighting so you don't. Well, let me ask you this. When you were a kid, were you, like, were you rambunctious? You know, like, because some people, like, that carries over really well into adulthood. If they were just, like, a really fearless child, and they would, like, you know, climb trees and do somersaults, and, you know, there's just kids who are like that. I don't, well, actually, the last time I remember trying to hang from the monkey bars, I slipped, and the skin off of my palms came off. <laughs> so I think some of that is... <laughs> what do you mean? The skin of your palm ripped off? Yeah. What? Yeah. I, 
Yeah, it was not. Oh. Yeah. So sometimes that. Okay, that's not going to do that too. <laughs> I know you're like. So it's like, okay, your arms are not going to hold you because they failed you once. <laughs> right. It's not true. So every time you go to do crow, you're just like, no, my palms will rip off. <laughs> no. But Don't it, do this. My palms will rip off. It's that hand strength. Yeah. You know, and yeah. that arm. But, but for me, it was a, a switch in thinking that it's really not as much your strength as a balancing act. Right. And so, once I got past that, I, I could do it a lot. Do it better. Although I do remember the time I was doing pro, and they ended up in the lap of the person next to me. <laughs> and, and she just said, when I try that, I do, I do it at home and I put pillows around. So she was completely... <laughs> okay with it because she had the same experience with it. I almost had it on Wednesday. Yeah? I almost did. <laughs> I got to my tippy toes. <laughs> nice. So, That's awesome. Well, I started shaking like that. Well, be careful because they get it gets addictive. Yes. I think it, it is like... So, so to interject a little bit of like the yoga tradition stuff. So... The, uh, the Hatha Yoga text from like the mid 15th century and stuff like that, where we really start to get introduced in a, in a historical sense to asana beyond just like, you know, like the sutras, the, you know, the authoritative yogic tests of, of yoga of the mind. Like he says three things about asana. There's only three sutras. He has 194 sutras in the book and three of them are on asana. And he basically just says, you know, uh, Sit in a comfortable but stable position, meditate on infinity, and then the posture is mastered. Wouldn't you do all that together? I mean, that's pretty much all. So it's like, there's no like headstand, there's no handstand. And when we get into the Hatha Yoga principles and the practices, they always like, they like to do a lot of, uh, there's a Sanskrit word, shutri, shuti, and it means um, exaggeration. And a lot of times these great yoga masters would exaggerate to get you to do things. And so the text always starts with, there are 8,432,000 yoga postures. In this text, we will teach 32. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, it's funny, but... Um, I forgot where I was going with all of this. <laughs> this is the kind of day I'm having. Anyway, there's 32 from the original text. Um... Well, what did you just say? Please refresh my memory. You're talking about being balance as much as a strength. Yes, thank you, thank you. Okay, so it says the reason we do the asana is to create strength. And it says specifically inner and outer strength. And so it's really interesting because what you said, Gene, is a perfect example of the ability to gain inner and outer strength from something. Yeah. Because I, I know, like, you're strong enough to do crow, but you ripped your hands off pulling off the monkey bars, and that's probably ingrained in your neural network somewhere. Somewhere. Right? Um, yeah. But so, also, the world's not going to end if I never do it either. Right. Western 
culture, we think of there's so much that yoga is an exercise form, and it's so much more. Right. You know, and you know, for me, you know, it was the missing. It was the piece that I wanted when I was going to the gyms that I wasn't getting. Yeah. You know, and, it's what clicked with me rather than the aerobics or jazzercise and jumping around. It's like, yeah. okay, this is not what I'm looking for. <laughs> right. Well, actually, one of my favorite yoga teachers talks about how um, when we're doing asana, we're still doing all the primary modalities of yoga. There's still pranayama happening. There's still meditation happening. There's still uh, drishti Banda, Mudra, and it's like a it's like a Mendelbrasa. Same thing when we're doing pranayama, we're still doing an asana practice. It just so happens to look very different. We're still doing meditation, and even when we do meditation, we're still breathing. We're still pranayama is still existent, asana is still present. It's just not the focus anymore. And so, I think it begs the question, like beyond just like the inner and outer strength. Um, you know, what is the purpose of asana? So, like you said, it's like, if asana was just to get the strength, why wouldn't we just all be going to the gym? Why wouldn't we all, oh, and I meant to mention deep relaxation, that's also part of the yoga um, kind of world. But so what, what is the purpose of asana in your yoga practice? And like, we can talk about like what the texts say it is, or what we can think it is, but really like, how does it function for you? And let me maybe preface this with a little bit of like uh, to appetite, appetize you a little bit. Is you know, I've heard stories that, um, in fact, Krishnamacharya and Patavi Joyce, I can't remember which one it was. One of them talked about how asana is so important for yoga teachers in this day and age because really we're teaching people how to meditate. We're teaching people how to breathe through the asana. And if I were to sit somebody down and say, okay, we're going to teach you how to meditate. There's two perils. Number one is, I have no idea what's happening in your mind. But when you do asana as a form of meditation, I can see, based on the way you hold your body, if you where your mental focus is, if you're distracted, if you're not holding your arms with strength, you know, if you're kind of like gazing off in the distance thinking about your laundry list or what you're gonna eat for dinner or what you're gonna get at the grocery store, it's very easy to tell when you're doing asana. Whereas in a seated meditation with your eyes closed, if I'm your teacher, I have no idea if you're doing it right or wrong. And Patabi Joyce talks about how if meditation is learned wrong, how difficult it is to unwind that. Because it gets ingrained in the neural network. I spoke to somebody recently this week, actually, and they were telling me how, you know, they were like, you know, I've been meditating for about a month now because I realized that I really need that. That's a lacking component in my life. But you know, I just sit there and basically grit my teeth until it's over. And it's like, what a miserable relationship this person is creating with meditation when really one of the main purposes is to abide your inner well-being, to come into a place of joy and peace and tranquility within. And here this person is like white-knuckling their meditation. And so then we have all these people, and this happens more often than not, I feel like, with people nowadays because we're so over-sensationalized that it's very difficult for us to be able to find comfort and stillness and silence. So then most people go out and they try meditation and they're like, that is torture. That's like the worst thing you could do for me. So, 
This is a big reason why asana was invented. It's because it's a form of meditation that the teacher can observe and maintain a healthy practice of habits for their students. And with that underlying guidance of Thira Sukham, you know, Sutra 246, which is asana should be done with equal parts, effort, and ease. So there's stability, there's steadiness in the foundation. There's also happiness, joy, and ease within the posture. And we see that, right? We see that with our students sometimes where they're like, they're just forcing it. They're just like grunting through it. Like, oh, I'm going to get this. And it's really hard to find. There may be joy in that, but there's not probably much ease in it. So, back to the question. Now that I've hopefully whetted your appetite. What was the question? Or do you have something else to say? No, I was wondering what the question was. The question was, how is asana functioning for you in your, in your yoga practice right now? Is it, is it a form of meditation, moving meditation for you? It is, and it helps recognize where the breath is, which is the source of all life and our mental state and how we interact with others, because when we lose our breath, we lose our mind. So when we, folk, when we do this moving meditation, it just ties everything together. Plus we get a physical endorphin release. When we do that, we observe, we observe each other, we observe ourselves, we turn into ourselves. So I feel we gain so much meditation, we gain so much from yoga by doing the asana. I know it's a small part of yoga, but it also is a big part of yoga, especially today. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it seems to be like the main gateway drug for people to do yoga, you know, and and here's the here's the crux of it. I feel like is that you get to a point, you you know, we all probably came to yoga because of something having to do with asana or the physical aspect. Most people, very rarely, do people come to yoga because they're like, I'm here to learn how to breathe, or I'm here to learn how to meditate, or I'm here for enlightenment. Right? Most people are like, who knows? Maybe their sister dragged them. Um, but the asana can be the thing that grabs you, that puts its hooks in you. And you're like, wow, like I really feel like a huge physiological difference. Like I walked out of the class, I felt super good. I was, I remember my first class, I was like sweating. I specifically remember looking up at my arm and triangle and seeing a drop of sweat, cold, like you know, condense right here and just drip down my arm. And I was like, I have never seen my wrist sweat before, you know. And I was blown away by it. I thought it was amazing. But the crux is, like all of the limbs and tools of yoga, is that they they can be pitfalls on one hand, where we get stuck in them, and we get stuck in the performance of them, we get stuck in the attachment of results or outcome, and then it becomes actually counterproductive to our process of personal growth and development. You know, and that's something like I look at a lot of times now with like Instagram, and I see these younger teachers coming up, and they can do all these like amazing things that like I was super focused on in my early days. And there's this like impulse I have for a moment where I'm like, oh man, I should get up early tomorrow and start working on my handstand presses again or something like that, so I can get my Instagram page all jacked up again. You know what I mean? And it's like, wait a minute, that's totally like, like who cares? Like it's beautiful to watch and it's very inspiring. And when you're at that place, you know, it can be the thing that brings you back to the next yoga class. But eventually, it, the hope is, like, if you're going to the right teachers, you're staying open, and 
it, it, the rest of the practice becomes contagious to you in a overwhelming way. Where then eventually, where I, I'm starting to, I really started to surrender and accept this in the last few years is the asana now is much more of just a supportive role for everything else. And it's become less of the main entree for, you know, for the feast of my yoga practice. I don't feel we achieve enlightenment by getting into squat. We don't achieve enlightenment by a handstand push-up. It's all about the journey, the whole practice. And I feel I've gotten so much by just listening to my teacher talk about the asana as we flow through it. I feel like I gained so much more just from the whole journey of the class than actually going through a peak pose. I love the peak poses. I think they're fun. I love doing inversions. But that's not what makes the class perfect for me. It's about the whole journey. And I worry about the excesses too when you see um, individuals not just doing one yoga class a day, five yoga classes a day, and we go into extreme of taking asana to the nth degree to have that perfect yoga sculpted body, or I will achieve enlightenment if I do this much yoga, but you don't really have to, you just enjoy what we have. So I feel we're kind of moving into some different extremes as well too these days. You said a lot of things there. And that's I know good I did. Things. I no, popped up so many ideas, but I feel like I've been talking a lot, so I want to I want to open it up to see what other people think about it. Because and if you don't have anything to say, I have a lot to say about it. But <laughs> big shocker. But what do you think? Uh, personally, I've I've been practicing two and a half years, and I can really tell a difference just in my relationship with Asana, mm -hmm. uh, like. Uh, you know, different postures actually talk to me, sort of, you know, I think about what I'm doing, uh, like Warrior Two, you know, extending out and that base, and really I can feel it sort of emanating from, from the center, which I didn't at the beginning, so I think that I can, I can identify with what you're saying about through time. Um, the asana then becomes representative of something else that's happening to you. And I'm also willing to try new uh, asanas because I know that, like, you know, I never would have thought I could do crow when I started out. So that that's sort of just a self-affirmation that you, know, you can do it. I feel comfortable doing it now. Which at the beginning it was just like real scary, like you're talking about. So I think it demonstrates in that case, it demonstrates that, that ability, that inner strength that I have uh, that I don't necessarily know about. But, you know, so. but it takes a while. Yeah. I think the asana is like are really good to help you clear your mind, but sometimes too good because I've done it before where like, you're just like, oh, I'll go to yoga so I don't have to think about life for a little bit. <laughs> so then like, yeah, here's a problem, I'm going to yoga around you. And then like, I think that kind of helps people go, like you said, you know, like five times a day or something. Because I've done like a form of escapism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so, I mean, I know I've been there before and stuff, and it just like makes it so easy, but I think um, then there's also like, then if we're doing that, we're not also utilizing the other tools that so, like, yoga provides, like aligning the chakras and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think for me, 
And this is just a recent like, realization. It helps me find that balance of steadiness and ease like in life. I'm a pretty rigid, structured person. And when I come to yoga, I realize that I can let that go. It's okay. And I'm a lot happier if I find some free flow. And um, so I kind of purpose that serves for me recently. Like, last two or three weeks. <laughs> so, trying to think about it that way. Well, and all, I think like we're kind of all dancing around the question, which is like, you know, I mean, I asked it very kind of like, uh, you know, as a straw man kind of argument, like, what purpose is asana serving in your yoga practice? Because really that, like, hopefully, you know, we pull the pull the curtain open and we see there really what that leads to, which is what is the purpose of asana? Which is like just another fake question. Because then it's like, well, what is the purpose of yoga? Like, you know, where is it all leading? Where is it heading? And um, you mentioned the word enlightenment, which is, you know, an interesting word because it's uh, pretty much a kind of a Western conventionalized concept, you know? Um, you know, you don't hear like Indian teachers talking about enlightenment. And, um, but I think it, it does like... I, I just remember starting yoga, falling in love with it because of the asana. Wanting to be a yoga teacher. Starting to learn about the later limbs of yoga, jnana, dharana, and samadhi, and being like, whoa, 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 what is this? Nobody nobody brought this up. What, what is this? And everybody's like, ah, it's just concentration, meditation, and bliss. But anyway, we're gonna we're gonna break down we're gonna break down triangle real quick. And I'm like, what? What's going on here? And it's like it's literally this summer is my tenth anniversary of teaching yoga, and I feel like I'm just now beginning to get to the point of earning earning literally earning the right and deserving the right to start to know what those things are on a deeper level, and. You know, we, we talk, we, I think it's fabled a lot of times, like in the lore of a lot of different traditions where like certain knowledge only is revealed to those who seek it with earnestness and, you know, certain austerities are taken and, you know, the whole grasshopper, you know, you know, snatch the pebble from my hand and eventually, you know, he appeases the master. But I think that, you know, 10 years ago, I was really frustrated with not knowing about it. And now, like, the mystery of some of the goals of yoga, some of these deeper limbs of yoga, I'm really happy to be there, to be in those questions. And it would never have happened without asana. And asana is still also required, even 10 years later. So it is definitely, like, a step. Asana is a step, but it's also... It's not like you use it as a stepping stone and you're done with it. You use it as a way to, like, I don't know, continue the journey. Does anybody relate to what I'm saying? It opens the door. Yeah. It opens the door to Narnia or wherever. You know what I mean? I just feel like you yes. just open and you just it's find all this amazing stuff, you know, when you just start to enter this journey. That's how I felt my journey with yoga has been. 
and people yeah. I know. It's just there's just amazing upon amazing layer, and there's more upon more. The more I learn about yoga, the more I realize I don't really know as much as I thought I did. I need to learn more, mm -hmm. and it's just well, and to and to get to the end of the knowledge of yoga, like. The deeper in, I, the more I get to know about it. Like I'll go through these kinds of cycles with it, where I like study really hard, study really hard, and I think I'm really getting somewhere. And like, man, I really know about yoga. I really know a lot about yoga. And then I'll find a teacher or find a teaching somewhere that just blows my mind, and I'm like, oh crap! I, all this work just to realize I know Jack Smack, and I don't even know where to go for the next step. I don't even know what the next step is. And that's so cool, in a way, you know? Like, thank goodness for that. Because if enlightenment were a thing, or if the, a goal that we reached in yoga, the end, was a thing, it wouldn't be a very sustaining practice. You know? I mean, it's like, I always like to say this. I didn't come up with this, but I love that co this concept is yoga was designed for humans, by humans. You know? And I think about those folks who helped design yoga and, you know, the asana, I call it the asana condition. It's a very current, modern thing, you know, people's obsession with asana. It wasn't like 2,000 years ago, these Michael Jordans of yoga that were writing the sutras and the Hatha Yoga Pradipika or the Garanda Samhita, the Shivananda Samhita, um, or Shiva Samhita. You know, all these people, they weren't getting hung up with peacock pose. They were using it so they could get deeper into some of these insights, some of these levels of samadhi to gain this knowledge. And the beautiful, the cool thing is, is they took great pains to not just go to the Himalayas in a loincloth, learn all this stuff, and then fire off the earth into enlightenment. They, the hardest thing is coming back and actually sharing it with the world. And be like, here, this is for you. I mean, because it is to to move into the internal space, to be basically a, um, like a, you know, like a reverse of an astronaut, whatever the reverse of an astronaut is, a sailor of the emotions, whatever you could call that, like put together two Greek suffixes, prefixes, a sailor of the internal world, right? That's what these dudes were, and like, that's a creative act, and if you've ever created something that is worth giving out to the world, you realize that's a whole other job. It's one thing to just actually get the knowledge and get there and know it, but then to actually like save it and record it, document it, and then put it into hands where it's safe and transitioned into the future, this is very special that we're even here. Like, I mean, it's... And yet that relationship of teacher to student or uh, transference is another way of looking at it because we're all the student, we're all the teacher, right? Um, it's in an interesting time right now too because um, you know you had to earn it back in the day. I mean there's story after story after story whether you're Buddhist or Tibetan yogis or Indian yogis or Tibetan Buddhists or whatever it is that was just the way it was back then was like hey if you want this knowledge you know if you came into the University of Yoga here in the forest if you left the safe dwellings of the city in India to risk your life you know not getting eaten by tigers to make it here to my temple to study with this Muni or this Rishi or this sage you know what I want you to do is carry water for 12 years you're just going to carry water from the well back and forth for 12 years 
and you know story after story about why it's so hard for them to learn and now um, I think it's a really interesting thing because we are in a much more dire need for yogis to become enlightened much more faster much more faster much faster or not enlightened, but, but to continue to develop their, themselves. And so a lot of this knowledge that used to be secret and you used to have to earn somewhat, it was such an austerity to learn it. Now it's more like, it's, it's a dangerous thing because this with this knowledge comes power, right? You give this power out to these people and it's like, whoa, I hope he does the right thing. You know, he didn't carry water for 12 years. I can't be sure his heart's in the right place. But he's a virtue to, to respect and carry forth and be a steward of this knowledge into the world. But, but a lot of the great yoga teachers alive nowadays realize that it's like there's no time to do that because we've got things that can decimate the world in a matter of seconds. So it's a little bit more urgent right now because we're in the whole Kali Yuga era. So, yeah, I like peacock pose. <laughs> Still off the deep end. Just come in with me. Well, I'll join you. Yeah. I think one reason why sometimes teachings are esoteric or, quote, secret is, you know, not just because only a few people are interested, which that's part of it, but so that, okay, so the person who learns it then values it as opposed to, well, yeah, we could tell everyone this, and only some people are going to be interested, and it's going to be information that other people aren't going to do anything with at all. Mm -hmm. I that makes any sense. I, I learned meditation before yoga. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm like 10 minutes late. So asana I know means to sit or to seat. Yes. Uh, yeah. So to me, you know, meditation is just, that's there. And this is better than physical therapy. This is my PT. Only it's, you know, PT plus for me. Um, anyway, that's my two cents. I love it. Both cents. No. Okay. Yeah, because I, well, I think the first... Well, who else wants it? I just talked for those 15 minutes again. Can we go back to Peacock? I don't really like Peacock. I feel like I'm going to break my wrist when I do it. Do you do it this way or this way? This way. Well, that's traditional. Yeah, yeah. Is there a and way to make it less painful? This. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Okay. But this way is actually less flexion on the wrist, too. Okay. This Walk. way will creep the muscle. Okay. Huh? And blocks, yeah, blocks will help too. Is the benefit just for more? Actually, the whole purpose of the benefit for Mayurasana is the Samana Vayu and the Manikura Chakra. Yeah, so it has little to do with the, well, I don't know. I Actually, see the wrist and um, my instinct wants to say no. <laughs> but the other part of me wants to love it because when I see something I don't really like, I feel like I should really like it, yeah. so I need to explore it. <laughs> Well, I used to do it like this forever because I couldn't do it this way. Yeah. And then I started to open up uh, in my asana practice when I changed my diet. And this way, when the fingertips are towards the knees, actually gives you more leverage in the posture. It's easier to hold the legs up off the ground when the fingertips are this way. So this way is easier on like, the carpal tunnel nerve and just the flexion of the wrist in general. Um, but when you do this, you actually have you've got like a, a leveraging system to, so you like, it almost feels like your fingertips are connected to your legs in a weird way. Maybe that's why it's called peacock, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
That's more like a turkey. Yeah. <laughs> That's a turkey? Yeah. I remember in school when you drew Thanksgiving around. Well, yeah, that's right, that's right. Well, I want to go back to something you just said about um, the seat. So asana, yes, defined as taking a seat or being poised in the posture, right? And there's a lot of people who, like, you know, say that asana's purpose is to prepare us for seated meditation, to open the hips. Um, and there is, some, there is definitely some truth to that. Um, and if you look at those 32 asanas that, you know, these great masters decided to highlight out of the supposed 8,432,000 yoga postures, 30, out of the 32 of them, like 24 of them are seated postures, you know, like most of them are different variations of siddhasana, padmasana, you know, virasana, vedrasana, they're all seated postures. So, yeah, the classical, the classical yoga asana is this. And that's what you build it all up for, so you can sit here to be able to do your pranayama without the body being a distraction for that. So you can do the breath work, so the breath work can then prepare you for a proper, you know, kundalini meditation or shakti meditation, yoga meditation. You said another thing too is the asana is like a. You said you came to it through meditation, and the second thing you said was that it's like a. It's healing for you. It's therapeutic. Oh, ther therapy? Yeah. Yeah, for me, it's, well, some of the exercises we do in adaptive, I mean, if you guys are light years ahead of what we practice in the adaptive studio. You know, I mean, we're still working on three-part breathing and all sorts of stuff. Um, so, yeah, but it's like physical therapy only more so. I mean, some of the exercises are exactly what physical therapists have had me do. Well, but I think that's very important, and we haven't talked about that with Asana, is that the therapeutic component to asana. So there is a specific purpose in yoga that we are to tone the neural system through all the modes of yoga. And that's a beautiful like, intention to be like, I'm going to actually promote. So that, you know, how does that fit in with Hatha Yoga Pradipika's definition of doing asana with like inner and outer strength? You know, because it, it's almost like, well, if asana is for inner and outer strength, how does that lock into asana as a therapeutic tool? Question. Discuss. I want to show another piece, too. Uh, in addition to the, the physical aspect of it, and at least in my class, it, no one makes a big deal about it, but there's a spiritual component, most definitely. I mean, the only, we might say namaste, particularly at the end of class. So that might be the only outer expression of the spirituality, but the instructors that you have here, you know, at least in the classes I take, are living it. I mean, you know, but the, the, the spiritual light just flows through them. That might be one way of putting it metaphorically. Yeah, it's really it really fascinating to pick up on it variously. So, then, you know, there's definitely a dimension here. I mean, it's physical, it's mental, and spiritual all at the same time. And you just focus on, well, what am I working on today? Well, I know for myself, some days it's like, okay, I'm going to really push my body hard because that's what I need to do. Other days it's like, no, I just really need to be sort of grounded, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. I'm going to work on some stuff, but I really need to work on centering mm -hmm. and stuff. So, yeah. That sounds like a fantastic mind-body connection. I think that's where Asana Deceit leads to, too, is another benefit is mind-body connection. 
and we listen, we learn to listen to our body and what it tells us. And maybe we want to run 10 miles every day and you're tired, you're like, I'm just going to make myself do it. But then maybe you're like, well, I'm going to meditate. And you reap health benefits through that too. Well, that and that in intuition, that inner knowing, that the more we listen to it, the more that becomes the authority in our life, and the more it pays off. Because, like, if you do say, oh, it's summertime, I'm going to lose 15 pounds, and this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to run 10 miles every single day. And if your body starts to tell you by Wednesday, no, you're not, and you're like, oh, you want to bet? You're going to drop the weight. What happens? You're going to sprain your ankle. You get injured, or right. Or you're going to do something. <laughs> you're going to do something else. You get eaten by a tiger. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and as you listen to that intuition, I think that you become your own teacher in that respect. And you do, like you said, you said uh, basically that people embody the practice. And I think that that's where the two worlds of what I was just talking about meet, where asana as a form of developing inner and outer strength and asana as a form of creating health and well-being, they meet in an embodied place, which is kind of profound. It like seems so obvious to just be like, I'm healthy in my body, right? But like. It is a mental, spiritual, and physical thing to be healthy. Well, you know? uh, well, I know, like for me, you know, like, you know, I came to a class and I was, you know, bad day stress and stuff, you know, and we did happen to do waterfall. Yeah, you know, and I was like, oh, I feel a lot better. So now when I, so now I relate that if I get really stressed, I'll go in my room, close the door and I'll do waterfall because I know that helped me mm -hmm. instead of what I used to do was go to the kitchen and grab the ice cream out of it. <laughs> you know, so yeah. so in both ways, you know, um, when I when I started taking that journey and stuff, you know, you know, I've lost thirty pounds. Nice. You know, so and it's nice, you know, because now that stress is like, oh no, I don't want that ice cream. I, I want to go do this pose because it feels better and I feel better after it and I can let everything go in my mind. You know, so it's taking that asana, you know, and taking it out of the classroom, you know, because I knew what it did for me when I was in there, you know, so. And I'm sure that there's probably other poses that would probably do the same thing, you know. Well, but yeah, we can but do it in different ways, like Tadasana is the quintessential blueprint pose for all yeah. postures, but if we're standing in line at the grocery store, and our physical posture is slouched, and then we start to gaze our eyes over towards Star Magazine, you know, it's very easy to be influenced when we're not poising ourselves. So literally, that's, to me, in my mind, that's a big part of taking a seat, is what seat are you taking? It's another way of saying, like, what are you willing to stand for in your life? Like, what are you willing to sit for? What What are you willing to hold your posture for? And what are you in alignment with, ultimately? Because that's a big word that's thrown around in Austin a lot, right? Like, alignment. But it's like, okay, beyond just the physical alignment of creating neutrality in the body, what are you... Because if you're not in alignment with anything, and I'm slouched in the grocery store line, and I look over, and I see that you know, that thing pulling at me, and I've got the decision fatigue from shopping for an hour, you know, and then all of a sudden I buy this thing, it's just not going to make me feel good about myself, because I'm looking at celebrities half naked who are way prettier than me, you know, or whatever it is, I mean, that's just an example, it might not be that, it might not have a negative effect on you, but 
you know, you'd probably have to argue how Star Magazine would have a positive effect. <laughs> on but but, but we're more susceptible to it. Stand in line, and you can look at Star Magazine and say, "Oh, that's interesting," and then move on. Yes. Yeah. So you know, that's that's the thing I've learned on the map is that I don't I observe other people doing fantastic postures, you know. And then I say, oh, that's nice, and then go on with what I'm doing. So, so it gives us a sense of boundary. And that teaches us not just physical boundary, you know, where it's like, you know, I'm never going to be doing one-handed handstands. I'm realizing that at this point in my life, you know, <laughs> I realized it a long time ago. So I'm, I'm at peace with it, you know, it's like I'm 38 years old, and one-handed handstands, it's like, they're really cool, but they're not nearly as cool as I thought they were 10 years ago. And it wasn't because I, they were, it was like right on that edge. Well, probably if I worked really hard and sacrificed a lot in my life, I could have probably got to the point where I could have done one-handed handstands. But, yeah, and then what? Yeah, but the, but the, the boundary of yoga, the, the teaching of the boundary was like, we have this limited resource because of two things. We're going to die. So time is limited and your energy is limited because you're only you. Right? And so, you know, all of a sudden it starts to become very apparent. Well, like, do I really want to put all this energy into doing one handed handstands? Or obviously the priority, which is going further into this developing myself via, I mean, like right now, we're actually doing yoga right now. And we're actually doing asana right now. And what's interesting is most people are in asana at some point or other. The question is, are you conscious of it? I, I, you know, being pregnant brings a whole new consciousness to the physical boundary, to the physical experience, the way you're holding yourself, the way you're sleeping, the way everything, right? Yeah, totally different. Yeah. Well, during the day when I'm working, yeah, I I find it's like, you know, that I'm either in deer or or, you know, some form of lotus or something, um, consciously, I'll, because I sit up straighter, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm at a computer, you know. Well, and so, how, how many of us, like Eugene, I know yeah. your story, so I know that, like, before we found yoga, were we disembodied? Like, anybody but me? Like, I know that, like, yoga showed me my body. Like, I was not, I could literally live in the future, and I could live in the past, but I w it took asana, yoga asana, to teach me how to live in the present. Now we only have like 10 minutes left, so I just want to make sure that if there's any other pressing questions, anything else we didn't cover that you guys want to get to, we can throw some in before, because we, we, I felt like we, we covered a lot, and then um, it felt like at my, one of my bio classes where we got from the cell all the way to um, uh, <laughs> genetics by the end of <laughs> But one thing I wanted to throw in, yeah. um, which I found a lot in my practice, is that, um, and this is something I have to teach often because I teach, you know, I teach in the app for MS, for Parkinson's, old folks, and I also have students at CC that I teach, so it's like all over the place. Yeah. And uh, one thing like that, first of all, like you were talking about enlightenment before, and I think enlightenment, like every asana, is, it's a process. Like when I get into an asana, for example, 
or when I teach an asana, I always see folks where they get into it and then they'll let, you know, the core will fall down before you know it. A triangle looks like my booty's five feet behind me and, you know, kind of over here with it. And um, I always tell folks that to consider that when you're in the asana, it's a living thing that inevitably you're probably going to go back to what you might be used to and to not feel dejected over that, to constantly come back and to bring consciousness back into it every moment. And I feel like what you're saying about the masters, I, I'm trying not to go over the place with this. No, it's good. But what you were saying with like the masters coming down to teach, yeah. I think that that enlightenment is a process too, because my first teacher was this really humble Indian woman. And if anybody would put her on a pedestal, she'd be like, oh no, it's not about me. So I have nothing to do with this. If you understand what I'm saying, you understood it before you walked in the room. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and with her, it was, it was, she always taught that enlightenment is this process. She would never say, like, I remember, because I was like this bright-eyed little 19-year-old coming to her, and she was, uh, she's like, what do you wish to get? Do you think that you're going to be enlightened and then life will be easy? She goes, actually, that's like level 2,000, you know, that's like, that's the point where all of a sudden things are way more difficult, and you actually have to try harder, and each moment's going to provide you with more and more of a challenge. So I guess just to tie it in, like, asana being a process and enlightenment being a process, it's, um... There's nothing, I don't want to, I'm not sure if this, in my own practice at least, and I can only speak for myself, that there's no completion in, in, this, in this whole practice I found it for me. Um, even my own asanas, I mean, I've been practicing for 23 years, and I still don't, I'm still not completely um, in, in complete agreement or understanding of what I'm doing most of the time. And I find that I always have to stay very vigilant and very humble and open and make sure that um, I never get to the point where I think I know, because that's always been my blockage. Um, you know, to be honest, I went a few weeks ago and I found, I did a stupid man trick and I hurt myself at Core Power up in Denver. And the stupid man trick I did was like, I know this, look at me, oh look, I have big muscles, I'm going to take my shirt off and show off. And anyway, I was, I was in this class and I was doing all these little crazy poses they were doing. And, um, and it was funny, I felt myself judging other people. And it was like, wait, I thought I was past this point. I mean, I teach this stuff and here I am judging people. And, um... And it really, I kind of went home and was a little depressed that night over, like, I've gone all this way and still, I'm still back here at this mm -hmm. point. So, um, I'm sorry, I hope that kind of fit in me. you realize that, though, you, you saw what you were doing. And oh, yeah, I think yeah. so many people will judge, and they don't realize it. And with yoga, what you've mastered is you have an awareness. Yeah. So even yeah. if we engage in the behavior, we still come back to the problem because we know what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> something you did say there, you said a lot of beautiful things, but one thing, actually this came up yesterday in teacher training, um, was this difference that we must learn between neutrality and naturalness. So um, Leslie Kamenoff talks about this in Yoga Anatomy where he says once we've kind of tightened the right springs in the body and loosened the right springs in the body. So, you know, relieved the proper tension and created the proper tension where the bones can move into a, set, a state of neutrality. The body will hold itself up of its own volition. There's a, he calls it intrinsic pressure. So once, like, my hips get open enough to a certain degree, uh, my psoas, everything is allowing me to sit into a posture, I can meditate for three or four hours. And my body isn't going to be the obstacle. I can really let it just be about the game of the mind, right? But so often when we first start and we start talking about some of these experiences of learning our body and we think that neutral equals natural. Whereas 
this is neutral, or this is natural for most people, right? To be slumped, and to be hunched, and to be holding themselves, and to be in a place where enlightenment, like you said, it's a process, but it would never come to you like this. Like, you have to, it's like the old saying, like, if, if you're going to invite God into your house, you better clean up. You better clean up first. You better clean house because you don't want to invite him over into a dirty place, right? And that's the same thing with the body. It's like we're trying to cleanse the body in a way to where it's like to receive these teachings, to be able to receive these things. Um, there's a whole lot of work to do, a whole lot of housework to do. And even once we've done it, the house gets dirty again. And all of a sudden, we're in a class judging other people and hurting ourselves, you know? So it is vigilant. It's like it's never ending. I think the hardest thing with my practice was bringing my daughter and letting her have her own practice. Yes. Not trying to peek at her, making sure she, you know, it's like, she's on her mat, I'm on my mat, and this is where I need to be. She's yeah. fine. Yeah. John, you were going to say something? I'm sorry? Were you going to say something? Well, yes. I always I'd like to. Um, I agree with you that enlightenment is definitely a process. I mean, hopefully for the entire journey while I'm in the body, and maybe even beyond, who knows. And uh, I want to go back to, to the example you gave of being in the grocery store, on the fact that I think I really typified the person that was hunched and slumped all the time, which is why I need all the yoga to try to undo, you know, 30 or 40 years of bad posture. Uh, because I'm going to relate what you're saying, and you can feel free to redirect it more into yoga. Sure. But what I'm hearing is what I think of as Buddhist mindfulness, Mm -hmm. or just simply being conscious or aware. And, you know, most of us, I think, I don't know if it's the U.S. only, I suspect it may be global, but most of us sort of go around without really thinking, just sort of an automatic pilot. And so just getting in the habit of thinking alone is great. So mindfulness or, you know, and what you're saying about the bandage, with the okay, with the asana, I've got this, you know, not just the, 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 you know, the physical, I've got my body aligned, but I also got my attitude, you know, my, yes. you know. Yes, the mental boundary. Yeah, the, the, the metaphorical head on straight. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, and then that boundary ends up becoming a container for that process. You know, it's not just of, like, gives us the ability to discriminate the things we don't want to enter in, but it also, when we do choose the things we want to invite in, we have then this steadfastness to hold it, to hold space for that. I love that this was a satsang about asana, and we've been talking about, <laughs> we've been talking, this is great, this is like such a good, like we've been talking about enlightenment the whole time. <laughs> That's so cool, because I was wondering, I was like, I wonder if we're going to be like getting up and doing postures and talking about where the arm needs to be in triangle, and it's like, this was so much more satisfying, and um, as our time comes to a close, I just want to thank you for being here, and I hope you got something from it. I'll post this online, and um, we're going to do the next one at the final, well, it's in and on. Yeah. It's, our, now, well, yeah. Thanks for coming. I hope you can come to the next one. I hope you got something out of this, and I hope it kind of stirred you up and inspired you to go, you know, dive into your asana practice on and off the mat in a whole new way because, you know, trying to do one-handed handstands is really difficult when you're trying to do it for your ego. 
but actually it's really fun to do when you're trying to do it for higher power, for God, for enlightenment, whatever words you want to put there, because then when you fall on your face, you have somebody to laugh with about it, right? No. Right on, thanks you guys, I'm